we're live. I think we're live. Hopefully we're live. All right. Special, special episode today. This is awesome. I'm super, super excited. Um, we got Jay Bhattacharya. It's Bhattacharya, right? People say Bhattacharya, but on Lex, I, he says Bhattacharya. I say Bhattacharya, but uh, my cousins think I, I, get, I pronounce it all wrong. So who the heck knows? <laughs> <laughs> all right. Dr. Jay Bhattacharya. Um, if, if, uh, in fact, I'm not even going to, I was going to give him the intro here, but for the three or two people out there that don't know who you are, who are you? Like, what's your professional background and how did you, uh, how did you become a, a fringe epidemiologist? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I'm a professor at in the Stanford School of Medicine. I have been for uh, 20 some years. Uh, I have an MD and a PhD in economics, um, but I've been writing on infectious disease epidemiology for basically all that, almost all that time, um, been on HIV, on on antibiotic resistance, a whole host of topics. As it turns out, that that uh, the tools of health economics are quite useful in epidemiology. Um, I uh, got involved with COVID because in the early days of the pandemic, I had a hypothesis that the, the disease was more widespread than people knew. And I ran a study with, uh, in Santa Clara County and LA County, two studies, uh, three actually, one also Major League Baseball nationwide, where we found that in Santa Clara and LA, there were 40 or 50 times more infections than cases, 3% or 4% prevalence, meaning three things. One, you couldn't go to zero. There's no chance by April of 2020, it was already too late to go to zero. Uh, that it was uh, the disease had a long way to go. Three percent is only a small part of the population. It's going to spread to basically everybody eventually. Um, that's in April of 2020. We knew that. Uh, anyways, that got me involved in the debate pretty pretty substantially. Uh, and uh, in October 2020, I wrote a uh, a document called the Great Barrington Declaration with Sunetra Gupta. She's a fantastic epidemiologist at Oxford. Uh, I think the chair in theoretical epidemiology there. And Martin Kuldorf at Harvard, who's an amazing, amazing epidemiologist and biostatistician. And uh, the argument was we should have, uh, there's a thousand fold difference in the risk of severe disease. Oh, yep, there it is. Um, and uh, older people are much higher risk of dying than uh, younger people from COVID. At the same time, the lockdowns are tremendously harmful. Closing schools really hurts kids, doesn't really protect them against COVID, which is not that severe a risk compared to the risks uh, that come from closing schools. So uh, I wrote that, and then four days after I wrote that, tens of thousands of doctors signed on, and um, you know, epidemiologists signed on. But then Francis Collins, the head of the National Institute of Health, uh, <laughs> he uh, he didn't like it very much. So he wrote an email to Tony Fauci, calling me, Sunetra Gupta, and Martin Kuldorf fringe epidemiologists, uh, calling for a devastating takedown of the premises of the declaration. And I started getting hate mail. I started getting reporters asking me why I wanted to let, why I wanted to kill Grandma. It was, it was really nasty, um, but it, I think it opened up a discussion. And certainly what it did is it, it, uh, it let everybody know that it wasn't the lockdowns we followed were not a consensus among, among epidemiologists, although you might have thought that from the, the press accounts that all reasonable epidemiologists thought that we should lock down. In fact, a substantial uh, portion of epidemiologists thought it was the wrong strategy, and um, I think that's why Francis Collins wrote that email. He wanted to essentially create an illusion that there was a consensus in science about lockdown when there never was. Uh, and and uh, it's, uh, anyway, we're, we are where we are. They unfortunately won the policy fight. They got their lockdowns in October, 2020. Um, and uh, the damage that we're seeing uh, from, you know, learning loss, from, from uh, economic damage to starvation in poor countries, uh, you know, essentially every poor person on the face of the earth were harmed by the lockdowns. Uh, and, it's, it wasn't necessary. Places that didn't 
have a draconian policy, didn't do wor worse, like, you know, for instance, Sweden or Florida. Sweden didn't do worse than the rest of Europe. In fact, it did better than the rest of Europe. Florida did about as well as California, um, as far as the disease itself goes. Uh, but they, their kids stayed in school all the time. So anyways, that's, that's, that's where we are. Uh, I'm, I'm now, I have a, I don't know if I have it, but I, 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 my friend of mine sent me a card that says fringe epidemiology on it. I think, uh, <laughs> I, I like the title better than professor of, uh, of, of health policy. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. So you, you, you talk about this a lot, the, um, the illusion of consensus. So I think, uh, unfortunately, as hard as to believe, I still think there is a decent amount of the population that thinks it's consensus and they don't know it's an illusion of consensus. So what do you mean by an illusion of consensus? And, 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 and how did they, how did they get away with that? Well, I think the government uh, used its uh, power to push social media, to censor alternate viewpoints, push essentially it's propaganda in, into newspapers, you know, mainstream newspapers. Uh, they had a, you know, a ticker for like how many COVID deaths there were, but no ticker for how many starvation deaths there were, or how many kids lost uh, lost educational opportunities, or you know, or the, or the consequences of that, the long term consequences of that, which are tremendous. Um, so it it used its power. In fact, I think it actually violated the First Amendment, Jonathan. I think uh, the uh, uh, the we have a lawsuit that the uh, Missouri Attorney General and Louisiana Attorney General have filed against the federal government where they uh, worked closely with social media, directing social media, telling it what to suppress, what ideas to suppress, what sometimes what people to suppress. That is how the illusion of consensus was created, by censoring and delegitimizing uh, fringe voices, uh, which should have uh, should have had a, a, a regular fringe. conversation. Yeah, fringe. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, that's, uh, that's Eric Schmidt, is that right? Is that who the attorney general? Yeah, yeah, and, and I think they're going to depose uh, Dr. Fauci and some others uh, that recently came out, um, which is which is good news. So um, you talked a lot about about um, lockdowns and how those draconian measures were absolutely the incorrect decision, and we have the data to back that. And what, what people don't realize, and what's really frustrating to me is, is you just touched on it, but I just want to reemphasize it, which is the. You know, you got that hate mail that, oh, you want to, you know, let the virus rip or, you know, let, let her grandma, which is the furthest thing from the truth, obviously. And uh, but yet they don't think about the grandma in a poor country that then, you know, can't afford food that day and then starves. That, like, which grandmas are like, you know, who are we talking about here? Like, like it's a very it's a bubble, at least in at least in the United States. But this was international, which is bizarre. Uh, and it seems totally like orchestrated in concert. It's very weird of what happens. But um. But what, but uh, we just dismiss the harsher measures of lockdowns, and so you want it. You have this, let's say, crusade of wanting to make lockdowns a bad word, remove it from the toolbox. How do we start that branding and marketing campaign? How do we remove that tool from ever being used again? Have you thought of any ideas on that? Well, I think first you have to scientifically document the harms, um, and a lot of people have started to do that. Um, the harms, uh, as you said, to starvation that in June, in March of twenty twenty one. The uh, I think it was the UN put out an estimate that 230,000 children had died of starvation in South Asia alone due to the economic dislocation caused by the lockdowns. You know, when you have people living very close to poverty, you disrupt an economy. It's people at the very bottom making you know $2 a day or less of income to suffer the most, and they suffered and died uh, in, in large, large numbers. Uh, the, the World Health Organization really bears a lot of the, the brunt of this. They should have been speaking for those vulnerable people in the, in the poorest countries on Earth. 
and they didn't. They were more focused on disease control, not on overall health, which is really their mission. Um, so uh, I, I think uh, the, the, uh, in order to do that, we need to have a conversation uh, both internationally and nationally. We need to have uh, a, a, an honest evaluation where the evaluation isn't conducted by the people who implemented the policy that pat themselves on the back, but are con uh, conducted by people who, um, uh, from a very wide range of viewpoints. Um, the next thing I think is we have to shatter this, this tool that, uh, that, that uh, governments have used to create this illusion of consensus. Uh, in our society, science is tremendously powerful. It's essentially the new clerisy, right? We, if you have the science saying do X, then we'll do X, even if X is the wrong thing to do. If you do it in the name of the science, then it's, uh, there's no way to question. It's like and the, the, and the UN and the UN recently declared that they own the science, so that's probably not very good. <laughs> I mean, the science is is owned by everybody. It's a, it's a common heritage of all, all, all mankind, I think. Um, so you have a, a really a, a distorted view by governments of how it can control scientific discourse. Essentially, if you have a new dark age, science that's controlled from above is not science. It's, it's essentially um, dogma. And what you have is, the, is that dogma has ruled during the pandemic. We need to restore the, the proper place of free discussion within science. Uh, so, so just for instance, if you fund scientific uh, uh, work like Tony Fauci or, uh, or, or Francis Collins, if you fund scientific work, you should not be involved with health policy. That's a deep conflict of interest. When Tony Fauci says, I believe the science is X and we should do Y. And people's careers depend on it. Tremendous billions and tens of billions of dollars go to scientists whose careers, I, I have a, uh, uh, I have a, a, a full professorship at Stanford. The reason, one of the reasons I have it is because I was successful in getting NIH grants. It's a, Did you it's, say that's like required for that position? I mean, it's not, it's not strictly required, but it's pretty much, it's pretty much required. It's very hard to get tenure without that in the, in the medical school at top universities. So you have a, you have a situation where um, a, a, a small group of people like Tony Fauci and Francis Collins can control the minds and utterances of a tremendous number of scientists who may disagree with them, but want to stay silent because they want to protect their careers. Um, it's a deep conflict of interest, at least as bad as having, you know, say Pfizer tell the, F, uh, the FDA what to do and the FDA just follows along. Right? You have to have a bright red line separating science funders from science policy. They, the, the, the conflict difference is too great. And the, the, uh, the sort of inclination for governments to use its, it's essentially it's like, you know, 5,000 pound gorilla to like throw its weight around among the uh, claiming to act in the name of the science um, is, is, is too great. And it, it's harmful to the public interest. So uh, how important... So to, to start this off, I in my opinion, it starts with you can't have this discussion in, unless you start off with accountability. I think I feel like accountability is 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 imperative, but I could be wrong. Do you think that how important is accountability in uh, this um, course to correct things? I know I tend to be of the mind that people. I mean, I think I think if someone broke the law, then then they, they should face whatever the law uh, says. But I don't think generally most doctors and epidemiologists and scientists were doing um, consciously evil things. So I don't believe. I mean, I've heard like talk of Nuremberg too. I, I don't believe in that. I don't think that that's a constructive way forward. 
the way I think about this is, you know, after a patient dies in medicine, what sometimes happens is the doctors who manage the patient will get together and have a, you know, some, a very pointed discussion um, where they, the game isn't to like blame somebody for killing the patient. The aim is to like figure out what went wrong and, and then do better. I think um, we're going to have much better outcomes if we follow that spirit rather than trying to say, okay, you are, you are, you are to blame. You, you shouldn't do this. I, I think the, the outcome of that process will be the lockdowns will be, will, will repudiate lockdowns as a strategy because it, it's just objectively tremendously harmful. It didn't really stop the spread of the disease. Um, and, uh, at the same time, I think we'll start to see these conflicts of interest that I didn't really, I think most people didn't realize existed before the pandemic, uh, or the, the use of social media to create scientific consensus or you know, the control of social media by governments to create scientific consensus. I think all of that needs to get reformed pretty fundamentally. And, uh, the accountability then is, uh, reforms that change structures and incentives, not, uh, not individual people. I think that's much less constructive. Right. Yeah. I, um, I guess I phrased that. I, I guess I meant more from accountability from the high up, maybe, you know, not directly even like Dr. Fauci, but just how the system is so centralized. And perhaps that's the problem, you know, where it starts and we actually need to rebuild these institutions or, you know, to rebuild this trust, we probably need to rebuild the institutions or build new ones, whatever it might be. It's going to look a lot different for the next 80 <coughs> years than it did the previous 80 years. So You're you've been doing this. Right. And, and you've been you've been doing this for decades. Is this so <laughs> a lot of what's happened? I've been totally oblivious to till 2020, I'd say, like the overreach and with government and stuff like that. I mean, just a lot of things. I almost feel like I really, really feel like we're living like an inverted reality where like everything's opposite. It's like really bizarre. Like I almost feel like if you did everything opposite of what you were told to do, you would have been very, very successful. It's really weird. It's almost like spot on. But is this something that you noticed like the power build up, the centralization? Have you did you see us building up over the decades? Or is this kind of like came out of nowhere and it's like, whoa, uh, we just didn't realize, you know, all these tentacles were kind of tied to the same place. I mean, I uh you know, when you're a fish, you don't notice the water, right? So I'm swimming in this in this uh fish tank. Um I, I do I would say like oh, looking back over my career, uh, the NIH was much less intrusive back in uh, when I first started. They, they were much more open to investigators coming, bringing their own ideas that maybe not necessarily corresponded with exactly what the NIH wanted. And it moved in the direction of centralized science. You know, uh, Francis Collins, the head of the NIH since, I think, 2008, he uh, is most famous for uh, the, the Human Genome Project. The Human Genome Project is a, is a massive project of centralized science where uh, a whole bunch of scientists, very smart scientists, spent decade or more on one idea, one project. And he brought that concentration of power into the NIH, I think, um, and transformed it into this behemoth where you have essentially, uh, you know, cartels in, in a whole bunch of fields that control the, 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 uh, the, the research agendas as opposed to being open to, you know, ideas outside the, the, the center, you know, from the fringe occasionally. You have to have that in science. You have to permit um, challenges to the central dogmas. Uh, that's how science advances. Even if it doesn't, uh, it's uncomfortable because it'll change uh, power hierarchies in science. Uh, and I think that's really the, the, the main uh, resistance we're going to face. If you have that, uh, this breaking up of, of concentrated power, uh, you're going to have a lot of people who are at the top of that hierarchy uh, not want that to happen. Right. And, and, and you, you've, you've talked about this previously, I think, but uh, 
that in order to correct this course, I keep saying this course, I can't think of another way, but to correct this path or to, you know, make things right as best as we can, maybe we need new leadership in the, right. It's hard to do it from the very same people that enforce these lockdowns. And now we want to correct things, but yet they're still in power. That's not going to be so easy. No, uh, but I don't think they'll stay in power for much longer. Uh, Tony Fauci is stepping in December. Francis well, he's Collins only Clark. like 80 years old. <laughs> he's only like 82. Or so. well, I don't oh, know yeah. Um, but, uh, but I think uh, it's not the age, it's the power. Like, I, I, I maybe this is impolite, but I think of him as like J. Edgar Fauci. Like, he, he has been in government for so long, and he knows how to use the, the bureaucracy to get his way. Uh, that, and, and, I mean, he's just tremendously clever at that. Did you know? Did you know this during the because you were you were doing work in the HIV AIDS epidemic? Was that? Did you notice the same tactics then in real time, or looking back, you do, or or neither? I mean, I personally wasn't affected by it because I, um, uh, first I was a junior researcher way at the bottom of the, of the you know at the, the totem pole, um, and I was uh, uh, not applying for funding from Tony Fauci's agency. There's other agents. I, my, my main funding has come from the National Institute of Aging, which is another NIH uh, agency. Um, <laughs> it all so, goes back. Uh, yeah, I mean, weirdly, because they were interested in what HIV and older people. So and I was interested in that, too. So that's why, that's why I worked on from, from that. Um, I think uh, I think the, the concentration has become worse over time. I think the the uh, the amount of uh, uh, of power that's been thrown around now I could be naive. I, I mean, maybe it was really bad back then too. And I just didn't see it. That's certainly possible. Um, but I, I I don't think so. I think I, I don't think I would have ever expected to see um, legitimate scientific discussion squashed with you know essentially innuendo, um, fringe epidemiology uh, just openly. <laughs> right. Know, that's that's pretty new to me. And I heard this in um, the documentary, The Real Anthony Fauci, but I thought it was really interesting, which is that propaganda requires censorship for it to work. You need to have censorship. And the, the amount of censorship we've seen in science, science, I don't like using that. By the way, when you learned about science growing up, was there a picture of Anthony Fauci in the textbook? <laughs> <laughs> um, but but, Actually, but that, that, by the way, was absolutely shocking. I mean, like how the, the, the absolute... <laughs> hubris of a man to say, you know, if you contradict me, you're not simply contradicting man, you're contradicting science. So, I mean, <laughs> who says that? Wait, you didn't know that? I did not know that. <laughs> well, that's why you're fringe. So, um, <laughs> um, but in this one will be more indirect because you're not, so we've seen this, um, I don't want to, I don't really want to use the word corruption, but we've seen this chaos or in, in, in the science field, in bureaucracy, in government. How does the media and journalism fit into all this because you would think that is a check on the on the extreme power of you know the especially the government but in the science in any field but yet not only were they complicit i felt like they were a cheerleader for everything that the powers that be i don't even know what to call it wanted to do and do you feel the same way no they absolutely were i, I think there's a dynamic here at play right so if you have concentrated power within science <laughs> it actually makes life much easier for mainstream reporters. They just need to go talk to the top and know, just find out what's going on. Uh, but the flip side of that is that they, 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 then they can't actually 
tell the people at the top that they're doing something wrong because then they'll lose access. Right. Uh, so you have this, like, this happens with war. Like I remember during the run up to the Iraq war, uh, CNN was uh, admitted that it, it sort of fudged the news because it wanted to be able to stay in Baghdad. Right. Uh, I mean, I, I think that dynamic uh, is, I mean, first it's an, it's an abdication of the responsibility that's, that journalists have. I mean, their, their, their job is to hold power to, to account, at least in part, even if it, if it hurts their political uh, leanings. Um, and I think uh, they, they certainly did not do that during the pandemic. In fact, I think they, they as you said, cheer-led for the, uh, for, for the, for the lockdown and other, other draconian strategies. Um, and uh, I, I think they, uh, when Tony Fauci and Francis Collins said that we were fringe, they jumped to it. Like, you know, who are we? We're, we're fringe up in, you know, Harvard, Stanford, Oxford. I mean, that's obviously fringe. Um, so you have to, you have to like, uh, you have to like uh, understand, like if, if they give us a fair hearing, then Tony Fauci doesn't talk to them. You have to go talk to somebody else. Um, really? You can't just talk to both sides? I don't I mean, understand. I think this is, this is, this is not uh, a, a unique thing within science and journalism. Um, the, the, this one, but I think the key thing is the concentration of the power. If you have multipolar power centers where scientists discuss with each other with different points of view, um, journalists have to cover that. They, they, can't, they can't just go to the center and say, oh, who's on the fringe? And who's in the center and just like they in, in the past years what's happened is uh, i think part because of the the, the global warming debate and other uh, some other debates what's happened is uh journalists have, have been very very careful about uh legitimizing what they view as fringe science uh and you know i don't see i mean i think there's some legitimately fringe science there's legitimately people who, who are saying things that are not you know just don't make any sense but that's um, not this case at all no, right. but I have to say, like, the journalists are not good at telling the difference. How do they know? Uh, and science itself also changes over time, right? Because you find you have new new data, new discoveries. Um, what was once fringe is now the center, right? Uh, right. You know, so, so you have uh, you have to have uh, a, a journalism that understands science. It can't prejudge science. It's not capable of it. Actually, it's just to be clear, nobody's capable of it. Uh, who knows, right? Uh, it, when I was in medical school, uh, I, w I was taught that the uh, if you have an ulcer, a stomach ulcer, you should treat it with, uh, with you know, uh, don't eat chocolate, stop drinking coffee. And if it, things are really bad, you can cut your vagal, vagal nerve like this, 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 uh, to stop the innervation to the stomach, um, to, to, which now it's, you just take an antibiotic, right? You have this uh, H. pylori. I mean, I, I think um, right. uh, the, the, you could go through... Uh, the uh, medicine with, uh, from the you know over the last hundreds of years, and you'll see central dogmas overturned over and over and over again. Um, it's not; it's it's actually quite dangerous for journalists to prejudge this process. They're not capable of it. They don't have the capacity to, to to tell the difference between true and false. And so, the right thing to do then is just to cover the discussion. And if they get it wrong sometimes, and they you know put fringe people up on top. Uh, occasionally, that's better than the alternative, which is to never let uh, true things that are outside the center come to the attention of the public. But then how do you explain, like, deliberate, I don't know, hit pieces or I don't even know if you say defamation, but like with the yeah, Great Barrington Declaration, there's very clear we need to. And I, I know it, it originally comes from that email that, that you referenced, but like I, the the media has to 
look, I mean, it, you call it the most least original work you've ever done, right? It was like the pandemic manual for all pandemics prior to this one that went bizarrely terribly, right? Like just awful. But yeah, it came out like you, you fringe and all this stuff, which is if you actually read it and you see who's a part of it, you would get the opposite interpretation of it. So how there has to be some accountability with the media in that respect, right? Well, I think um, the media can start by just covering it. The, the, you know, you can't go back in time, but maybe you can start covering things fairly, right? Uh, you know, uh, you, with the, the Iraq war, for instance, is a good, a good example of this, right? They, they were cheerleaders for the Iraq war on the run up to it. And uh, then over time, they started, started like questioning it. Uh, and you started to get a much fuller narrative around it. Um, and that changed public opinion. I think that the media could do that here, right? They, they got it wrong uh, and they need to understand they got it wrong and then start to start to bring that back. It may not be the people that covered the, the pandemic uh, incorrectly. You know, the, the Atlantic or the New York Times uh, panic mongered. Uh, people won't trust them anymore when they're talking about, about, about uh, you know, this kind of policy. Uh, there may be other media sources that do that, but that is happening and it will happen. And I think, um, the panic mongers are losing credibility uh, because they they really deeply got everything wrong, as you said. But this it's hard to like imagine getting every single thing wrong. That is exactly <laughs> what's happened. It's it's opposite. It was literally yeah. I, I it was so per it, like it's hard to get it's hard to get everything right, but it's just as hard to get everything wrong. It's hard to be a hundred percent either direction, and I feel like they got an A plus on the wrong. Like it was absolutely <laughs> extraordinarily interesting. I've been trying to think about like the intellectual error involved. Uh, the key thing, I think, actually goes, we've been talking about HIV a little. Uh, I think it goes back to that. In infectious disease epidemiology, because of how bad the HIV epidemic was, the people at the very top of the field made their bones working on HIV, right? That uh, Tony Fauci, of course, very famously, uh, Debbie Burks, who was the White House Task Force Coordinator. She was the head of PEPFAR, which is this like a, a initiative by President Bush to send uh, dr AIDS drugs to Africa, very successful and saved millions of lives. Um, uh, Robert Redfield, all of them were people who had a lot of experience and success with HIV. Not that it was particularly successful, so many people still died, but you know, we made a lot of progress. Um, so uh, you, have a, you have a group of people whose instincts are to think like HIV. Uh, and they brought those instincts to COVID, uh, but it didn't work. Right. For HIV, um, you have like all of the all, you, you get HIV and then five years later you get AIDS. And that during that time, unless you have a test, you won't you, you won't know. So most of the spread for HIV is asymptomatic. Um, you uh, testing is like absolutely key. Like you find people who are high risk and test them and you can identify it so they can alter the behavior and not spread it. Right. Uh, contact tracing is really important. You, you pretty much know who you got HIV from or the set of people you might have spread it to. Um, uh, because of how it spread. Uh, all of those assumptions about it, with HIV, there's no immunity after you get HIV. In fact, it kills your immune system. Um, essentially, all of those instincts for HIV are maladaptive in the context of COVID because COVID's not like that. You get immunity after after you get COVID and recover. It, it's not perfect, but, but it produces, produces pretty good immunity against severe disease and death the next time you get COVID. Um, you uh, mo most of the spread of this is not asymptomatic. There's some asymptomatic spread, it's not, but it's not primarily asymptomatic. Um, contact tracing. I mean, you breathe near me and you'll get it. Yeah. I mean, that's just. I mean, it's 
you know, who knows who gave it to, or how, it just doesn't make any sense. As soon as like the number of cases go up, the contact traces get overwhelmed. Um, you know, and, and, uh, you, you, you have this, like, um, it's just like every instinct was wrong. It's because they, they, they had the wrong mental model. Um, the other mental model I think they had was SARS one, which sort of died away, uh, because it, by itself, because I, I think it didn't spread by aerosols the way that this virus does. Um, and so they just, they had the wrong mental model. Uh, that, you know, like early on, let's say January, February, uh, there were, you read, uh, you read, like you go back and read people like Tony Fauci. They're like, well, it's going to be fine. Don't worry so much. Uh, wash your hands. Um, and then they're, you know, they ring the alarm bells in March. What changed? It was already too late by March, 2020. Like the, 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 the disease was basically everywhere. Uh, and in, you, in, you proved that with your studies. Yeah, exactly. That was the 3%. It was too yeah. late to lock down and stop it. Even if that was a measure to take, that basically nulled it, and it should have just—we uh, shouldn't do anything. It's already out, right? Wasn't that yeah. The well, but, but then what that means is the lockdowns. What it, at best, what they do is they push the cases out to the future. At worst, what they, at, what they do is they just—they, you know, if you're <clears throat> if you're not laptop class, if you have a you working class, you know, uh, you know, single mom or whatever, and school closes, you're gonna have to work anyways, despite a lockdown. Isn't um, this kind of like Australia? Was that would that be an example of that? Well, Australia was Pushing an it. interesting case because it, it actually got to zero, uh, in part because it hit Australia in their in their summer or in their in their like uh, what like uh, uh, autumn our our winter like their summer our winter. <coughs> but, um, the disease seems to spread much more efficiently in the summer in the in the winter, and so um, when Australia locked down, it hadn't seeded very much, and they actually did get to zero. It put them in a trap, actually. So for two years, whenever there's a single case, they lock down harshly. Melbourne had 270 days of lockdown, in draconian lockdown. That there was a, a an apartment building, uh, you know, a develop, uh, you know, housing development of four people that they locked, they closed it, and wouldn't let anybody out for five days for a week, even though people were, they had no access to food. Uh, it was just unbelievable uh, that the, the, the civil rights violations were tr tremendous. Yeah, but they, it's, but, it's just civil liberty. It's not a big deal. Well, it's the funny freedom. thing is they now, through the pandemic, have had more cases per capita than the United States. Um, they, uh, they The lockdown delayed their vaccination campaign. They thought they had zero COVID, so there's no need to rush to vaccinate. Um, and so instead of vaccinating by, say, March of 2021 and opening up, they didn't start their vaccination campaign in earnest really until like September, October, 2021. So they had like a full nine extra months of, of lockdown threats that was completely unnecessary. They could have vaccinated their old, protected the vulnerable, as we said in the Great Barrington Declaration, folks protection of the vulnerable, um, and then and then lifted the lockdowns, avoiding tremendous harm to their, especially their poor and, their, and the uh, working class populations. So, so, you know, you've done a lot of interviews, stuff like that. So as time continues to move on, as time does, are you becoming more optimistic that we are starting to head in the right direction? Or is it kind of hard to tell if it's, if we, if we're in a better place or are heading in the right direction? <laughs> Do you think we're correcting course a little bit better? I don't well, know. What that's. I, I think, um, except for China, the entire world has adopted the Great Granite Declaration. Not okay. everybody has said that, but that's exactly what we've done. Israel. Um, so the, the the de facto policy is the Great Parenting Declaration, right? We're not actually trying to suppress the zero. That's that's everyone understands that's foolish, except for the Chinese. Um, we're we're not uh, we're not we we are starting to acknowledge lockdown harms finally, 
uh, and the harms to the poor, the, the, ch the children and the working class, that, that's starting to happen. Um, and this idea of you deploying resources to protect vulnerable people uh, is, is that, that, that idea has started to catch on much more than, uh, than the, the, the idea of like universal suppression to, to help the laptop class out. Right. So and I think the de facto policy shifted. What hasn't shifted in many places is an acknowledgement that that de facto policy has shifted, right? So we changed our policy, but uh, governments haven't told us that we've done it. So that's why some of the tumult you're seeing around uh, or in, this, in the discussion around this is still there. Um, it's going to happen. I mean, I think, uh, you know, the, the, eventually the rhetoric catches up with the de facto policy. And do you think that has to happen? Do they have to acknowledge it for the course to fully be correct? I mean, is that, is that a required step? There's a required step. Absolutely. Uh, they, the, the people that push the policy, the lockdown policy may not be the ones to admit it. Uh, I'll give you a model of this. Uh, in Alberta, Canada, there is a new premier, uh, who, uh, uh, Danielle Smith, I think, who replaced Chris Kenny. Um, she, uh, the first thing she did when she got into power, one of the first things she did is she apologized for the lockdowns. And I told the people that were fired uh, in, in, the, in, the, in the state, in, you know, the province that, 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 uh, that who, who worked for the government, that if they fired because of the uh, vaccine mandate, that they would rehire them or you know, work to rehire them. I, I think it's new leadership that did that, did this. Um, and as a result, I think the Alberta uh, people will trust public health more. Um, it may not be the same people who implemented the, the lockdowns who admit that there was a mistake. I, I think that's probably too much to ask. But uh, what we're seeing, I think, uh, in place after place is the, the politicians that push the lockdowns. Uh, it's not universal, but in many places, the politicians that push the lockdown are, are, are leaving power. Right? Boris Johnson leaves, not, not because of the lockdowns, but because right. of the party, right? Uh, uh, Andrew Cuomo leaves not because of the crazy sending COVID-infected patients to nursing homes, but because of some you know, amorphous sexual sexual harassment thing. Um, uh, you, you have uh, you have uh, or or in Australia uh, 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 was it like the uh, the uh, I'm blanking on the name of the former premier is replaced by uh, Tony Albanese who. The, the, the former premier, of course, adopts a, a policy of letting the states decide what to do, essentially de facto rubber standing a lockdown. Jacinda Ardern in, in New Zealand apparently is under under political trouble. Um, you know, the lockdown, uh, the people who push the lockdowns, they may not, it may not be explicit why, it may not be lockdowns explicitly that leads to their, their ouster, um, but the lockdowns played a very prominent role in the political troubles that the, that the lockdown, uh, that the, the lockdown political leaders had, right? So it's not, again, a not an accident that uh, you see someone like uh, Ron DeSantis uh, apparently cruising to re-election in, um, in, in Florida. I mean, he famously stood up against the lockdowns. Um, and I think that, uh, the, that the, it's a funny thing, right? The politics doesn't always, it's not exactly always on the nose. But the people who replace the, the leaders that led the lockdowns, um, I, I think will have a very strong incentive to, to uh, do an assessment uh, so that the lockdowns don't ever happen again. Uh, the, the, the politics of it favor, um, it's, it's weird. It's like, it's not even a left-right politics, honestly, right? So like in the U.S. it is. Um, but you have a Swedish social democrat government that puts pushes a non-lockdown policy, right? You have a, a right-wing Tory government in the U.K. that pushes a, a lockdown. Um, it's not clear that it's a right-left. No reason, no reason it ought to have been. It's just in the U.S. It's, it happened to be that way. Just, I guess Trump was in power. 
that's what that's so bizarre to me though because this is not a this is the the, the big reason why I also started this is like the, the issues that are going on for the most part are not right left it's really just like truth fiction like evaluate and and you know look at the data or ignore it like it's just you know it's just it, it you almost have like two cases you brought Ron DeSantis you have Florida and you have California and I, I think pretty much those are like opposite case studies for the most part, like literally almost exact opposites. Yeah. Is there any indication that California's decisions did better than Florida or is it not, or is it perhaps the exact opposite, which would be right in line with how things are going, you know, the past two years. It's the, it's the opposite. Jonathan. So <laughs> like uh, uh, the all cause excess deaths uh, in California through the pandemic are higher than in Florida. Now, I say all cause excess deaths are high throughout the U.S. Uh, even Florida has, I think, too high. Um, but I think that points to problems in how uh, the poor in our country have access to health care. It's what one of the one of the major problems I think the pandemic is. As, I mean, it was, we already knew that before, but really identified. Um, so I think, uh, I think uh, but if you look at the, the results, Californians didn't fare better. The age-adjusted COVID mortality is about the same through the pandemic in, in California and Florida. Um, and California children didn't go to school. The unemployment rate was like 8% during the height of the pandemic in California. It was like 2% in, in Florida. Uh, small businesses didn't get crushed. Um, you have a, a situation where uh, California essentially sacrificed its children, its working class, its poor, it, it, and its small business for nothing. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. That's such a dark, like, I, I, it's... It's hard. It's really, I, I mean, this actually happened. It, it's almost like I almost like there's a lot of times uh, like during the day, I, I, I'm really thinking like the stuff I'm like, I'm going crazy. Like I need like something's going on. Like I'm going crazy. There's no way this has happened, but it, it really has happened. So speaking of California, the new bill that that passed right from Governor Newsom, um, I imagine you um, are very you love that bill and you think the bill's great for medicine. Can you can you tell me your take on that incredible bill that will do science incredible justice? <laughs> um, so yeah, so the bill is called AB twenty ninety eight. Um, it's a bill that essentially says that if you are a practicing doctor and you tell your patient misinformation, which they define as something contrary to CDC guidance, then um, you could lose your license. Well, that's good, though, because the CDC has a perfect track record. But go on. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, like in the, the bill itself contains misinformation about the, the relative <laughs> uh, benefits of the vaccine. Um, I mean, it, you know, it's 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 crazy. Like the the the, um, uh, the the effect of the bill is essentially to put the government in the in the examination room with you when you're seen by a doctor. Right. Oh, so the doctor then is like thinking, okay, well, this patient uh, probably doesn't need this thing, but the CDC says it, it probably does. I mean, I know all kinds of things about this patient that the CDC doesn't, but I, if I say that he doesn't need it, then, uh, yeah, I might lose my license. Um, <laughs> it's, it, uh, so it undermines trust, patient-doctor patient, patient uh, trust. Um, the other thing about it is it's funny, like uh, when Governor Newsom signed the bill, he did a signing statement where he said it was just about the doctor-patient relationship. But all of the propagandists that were pushing the bill, they, they made me a central focus of demonization and attack. I don't practice medicine. I do research for a living. Why are they doing that? Um, well, it's not, the bill is not simply 
to uh, to police what doctors do. Uh, it's also to make sure that the conversation broadly doesn't contradict CDC policy, even when CDC policy has gone badly astray. Um, they want to, uh, to to essentially, within California, suppress open scientific discussion. That's the effect of the bill, even if it's not the the uh, the the the, 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 the um, written like directly written literal interpretation of the bill. That the effect will be to silence scientific discussion um, on 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 issues that, that the CDC weighs in on. Are, are you now, we talked about the very first thing we talked about, the illusion of consensus. So I want to make sure I know what the truth is here. Are, is, the, uh, is it actually that most physicians and researchers and you know, people associated with, with uh, medicine in California actually are speaking out against this and are very upset and are very loud and it's just suppressed on social media or they've already been to platform so we don't even know? Or are you kind of shocked and perhaps appalled that there isn't more, there aren't more people speaking up about this in the state of California? Well, <laughs> it's funny. Uh, the, the California Medical Association came out in favor of the bill. Uh, some of the top executives are, are lawyers. They were at the French la- the famous French Laundry uh, get-together with Governor Newsom during the lockdowns. Um, the, the, it's, it's, and they were, they were pushing hard in favor of the bill. Same time, I've gotten lots of emails from you know, rank-and-file doctors that are very worried about what the bill will mean. Um, uh, and there are now a number of lawsuits um, that have already been filed against the bill by, by doctors who have standing because they practice in California uh, to say that, look, this violates first basic First Amendment rights. Um, so I think that that, uh, that um, those legal challenges, I, at least I hope, are, are, are promising. Uh, I don't think this bill should stand. It, it, it seems like a clear uh, imposition on, 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 on the freedom of medical practice by doctors in California. I mean, it, it, it seems completely totalitarian. I, I could be crazy to think this, but like, uh, I just, I like to tell the audience like exactly what it, it just, I don't even know another word. It's just, it's, it's beyond me. It's wild. Yeah. It's uh, really, really strange. Like what's the, what's the purpose of the bill? Like there's already malpractice law. So if a doctor does something that's bad for you, um, they'll, you can, you can sue the doctor and, and, uh, get remedy through that through malpractice. Well, you know, well, well, uh, um, trod path to do that. So it doesn't protect patients against something. The, the purpose of the bill is essentially to put the government uh, and the CDC in the same room as the do- every doctor. The doctor is scared to contradict what the CDC says. Even I don't want to be in the same room as Rochelle Lewinsky. But anyways, uh, the, but the, I, I mean, I think you and a lot of people, I think, just have too good of hearts and, and, and you know, think that that there's not like perhaps I don't know what else to call it, but like evil in this world and maybe malice. I, I'm not saying that's the intent. It just seems like maybe that perhaps that does exist. And there's perhaps truth coming out with COVID and, and maybe the vaccines and whatnot, and they're trying to be ahead of it and, and suppress it. And they know that they're wrong. And they're like, this is like the last measure to quiet people. And I, I, I it surely seems like that. I, I hate to say that. I do think that 99.9% of the population are good and positive, but I do think there are perhaps bad people. And, and it surely seems like it's on front display. Well, you know, I, I, <laughs> I have, a, I have a Christian view of, 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 of uh, people's ethics, right? So the, the line between good and evil cuts between every it cuts through every human heart. So there's good and evil. I, I think to me, it's more about the incentives. Like, what is the purpose of this bill? It's to, to change the balance of power so that the government um, has more power over, over doctors, to silence and uh, dissent by doctors when the doctors don't agree with, uh, with public health policy. That's the purpose of it. Um, and, and, you know, I think... Um, 
the, the effects are inc- incredibly malign. Whether there's evil intent, I don't know for sure. I, I do think that the intent, though, is to concentrate power, and the effect will be evil. But it's it's so strange that this comes at a time when literally the worst resume you can have to get votes or to get um, people to agree to give you more power, the worst track record you can have is the two years prior to that bill, literally last place. In fact, if there were 515 people graduating in class, you'd be 515. In fact, you might have been expelled. Okay, like you wouldn't even be in the school. And yet we want to centralize more power. It just like one's over here. It doesn't make any sense. So there has, I, I, I don't know how else to think of it. It's, it's wild. I mean, I, I, I think a model for this is, is power, right? You just, if they want to concentrate power, they want to do the opposite of what we were talking about earlier in the podcast. They want to solidify power hierarchies and control. Um, and, and, you know, for the people at the top of those hierarchies, the ones who passed the bill, that's a good thing. Well, because they don't want to lose power. And I think what's happening, like you talking and other great people talking and, you know, trying to get the truth out there. And it's not about the truth being good or bad. It's just getting the truth out there and then let's discuss and debate. You know, like I always thought that science was something that is always evolving. You you discover new things. You challenge it. I never knew until 2020 that science was fixed, done, and it was whatever the powers said it was. And that's it. And you don't question it unless you get kicked off social media. (laughs) <laughs> am i crazy I mean, it's a dark age that's what we have but the enlightenment is over right yeah. you have essentially a new clarity declaring from on high uh that uh that which is true and that which is false and heretics are excommunicated from the from the high church um so that you you uh you, you become fringe as soon as you disagree with the, 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 the central power i mean I, I think um science cannot thrive in that kind of environment so, t- science needs open discussion it needs challenge in order to thrive um, and I, I don't, I mean, I, I mean, we stand at a, at a crossroads. We can, we can decide we want, we, we want to go down that dark age, or we can decide that we want to go back to the enlightenment. Those are, our, those are our two options. Um, and I think it'll be political. It'll be cultural. Uh, it'll be people making the case that the enlightenment actually was a good thing, um, that, that, that will turn us back. Um, but it's going to take work. So I'm going to push back. I think there's three options. I think those are two of them. But I think that we're going in a third. I think what's happening now, as crazy as it sounds, is actually a great thing. I think that we've all been blind to this growing, growing centralization and powerful structures. And, um, you know, the age of enlightenment, I do think it's over. But I don't think the dark ages is, is next. I think we're seeing the status quo that we just, you know, like it's a, it's a whole like the fourth turning. There's these cycles that happen. And usually at this time, which we're in right now, is the old institutions don't work anymore. And so we rebuild them and we change it. And so we're going into this new era, and I think it's going to be an era where people are freer than ever, and things are more personalized than ever, and things are more one-to-one than it ever has been, and it's going to be the most decentralized as the world has ever been. And we're just happen to be living through the time where these gigantic structures, the NIH, these, 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 these incredible institutions that fund everything just so happen to be crumbling right now. And those are very tall buildings that are crumbling. Like they are gigantic. And so we're just feeling the pain of it. And they're doing every last thing to hang on their power because they don't want to, you know, relinquish it. But you can't call everybody a fringe uh, epidemiologist because it doesn't, or, or far right extremist. It just doesn't work because all of a sudden 
everybody, right, left, blah, blah, like tall, it doesn't matter. All of a sudden, everybody's on that side. And the only one who's on the other side is like Fauci and some other people. And it's like, everybody knows now it just doesn't, it's over, it's done. And I think we're rebuilding a different world where you're going to have more personalized, incredible treatment where it's like beyond enlightenment. It's like way better. I just think we are in the depths of the despair of the old system, which is so big and took decades to build. It's going to be a difficult time. But I am like so out. Like I don't think the thing with Newsom is going to stay. Like, what's going to happen is people are going to detach from the system and start building their own communities and their own decentralized institutions with localized people. And it's going to be more like kind of like old, like the older days where it was like the community doctor where you knew everybody. And it's not this whole globalized practice, if that makes sense. No, I mean I I like your hopeful vision, Jonathan. I mean I I do think that uh, the pandemic has exposed the weaknesses of so many of our institutions. You know, public health, uh, scientific funding structures, um, governments, lo local, uh, state, federal, um, and those structures need reform. Um, and you're right. I think a pol political coalition is there to build that reform. Um, if uh, if you have a creative um, set of politicians who who, uh, who can who can build those coalitions, and I, and I, I you know I do I do agree with you. I mean, when when you have those kinds of opportunities. Um, uh, it's, it's hard to believe that people would just leave the $20 bill on the table. Uh, someone would pick it up. And um, uh, it, it, there's a, the thing is, is that there's a central trade-off here, right? So you have uh, a power, like this information technology, that can either be used for totalitarian control or be used for, for freeing people. Um, and for the longest time, we thought about uh, those information technologies as a freeing technology, the Internet democratize knowledge so that everyone can have access to it, right? Um, and what we've seen is a, is a, is a turn toward using those, those technologies to, to oppress people in, in recent years. I don't believe that people want to live like that. I just can't believe it. Um, and I agree with you. I think that, that, that there will be pushback. And it'll, be, it'll be constructive, structured pushback that will topple some, some of the old defunct structures, replace them with things that are much more decentralized and much more effective and much more personalized um, 